Chapter Seven of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amanda Hyman. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Chapter Seven: Up and Down. When Jane had spoke of twenty thousand pounds each as the probable fortune of herself and her sister, if their uncle had made his will in their favour, she rather under than overestimated the value of Mr. Hogarth's property. She had expected that many legacies to old servants, and bequests to several charitable institutions, might have been left, and there still would have been that handsome sum for his adopted children. Francis Hogarth found that he had come into possession of a compact little estate in a very fine part of the country, a small part of which estate had been farmed by the proprietor, who had tried various experiments on it with various success. There was also money invested in the funds, and money laid out in railway shares, as well as a considerable sum in the bank for any present necessity or to be spent in the improvement of the property. Elsie had expressed a doubt of her cousin's getting into society, but there appeared to be no likelihood of any of the country gentry looking down on the new laird of Cross Hall. The visiting acquaintance of people of sufficient standing in and about Swinton had consisted of twenty-four marriageable ladies, and only four marriageable gentlemen, even including William Dalzell, who was known to be both poor and extravagant, and an old bachelor proprietor nearly as old as Mr. Hogarth Sr., and as unlikely to marry. Parties in the country were greatly indebted to striplings and college students home for holidays to represent the male sex. They could dance, and could do a little flirtation, and thought much more of themselves than they ought to do, but as for marrying, that was out of the question. An exchange of two heiresses for one heir of Cross Hall could not be but considered to be an advantageous one. It was not in human nature that the young ladies themselves, and their fathers and mothers, and party-givers generally, should not be eager to know Francis Hogarth, and be more than civil to him. The court that is paid to any man who is believed to be in a position to marry is one of the most distressing features in British society. It is most mischievous to the one sex, and most degrading to the other. Long, long may it be before we see anything like it in the Australian colonies. No doubt, if it is excusable anywhere, it is so in country, or provincial society in Scotland. We cannot help spoiling the men, says a distressed party-giver in these latitudes, conscious that this state of things is not right, and half ashamed of herself for giving into it. There are really so few of them. The sons of families of the middle and upper classes, as they grow up, are sent out to India, to the army, to America, or to the Australian colonies. Even when they do not leave the kingdom, they leave the neighborhood, and go to large towns, where they may practice a profession, or enter into business with some chance of success. Their sisters remain at home with no business, no profession, no object in life, and no hope of any change except through marriage. Many of their contemporaries never return, but settle in the colonies, or die there. But if they do return with money, perhaps with broken constitutions and irritable tempers from India, they still consider themselves too young to look at the women with whom they flirted and danced before they left the old country, and select some one of a different generation who was perhaps a baby at that time. The fathers and mothers see too clearly the advantages of an establishment to object to the disparity of years and the state of the liver, while the girl fluttered into importance, as Madame de Vericourt says, by presents and jewels and shawls, thinks herself a most fortunate woman, particularly if she is not required to go to India, but can have a good position at home. 
so when a young man not more than thirty-four rather handsome of good character and apparently good temper intelligent and agreeable who went to church the first sunday after he came to cross hall and who was the legitimate heir of the old family of hogarth came to settle in the county as a neighbour his having been clerk in a bank for eighteen years was not looked on as a drawback he was all the more likely to take good care of his money now he had got it and calls and invitations came from every quarter mr and mrs rennie who had visions of his being exactly the person to suit their eliza had a month's start of the country neighbours but they feared the results of his being thrown among such families as the chalmerses the maxwells the christians and the jardines he had asked the rennies to pay him a visit at cross hall in the autumn when they always took a run to the country or to the seaside and had accompanied his invitation with a request that if his cousins came to edinburgh the rennies would show them some kindness and attention which they readily promised to do if mrs rennie had known his secret feelings towards the country families she might have set her mind at rest as to their rivalry but francis was very reserved and his training had not led him to place confidence in any one till his heart had recently opened to his cousin jane he received the visits of his new neighbour civilly and had accepted their invitations but the conduct of these people towards the disinherited girls made him secretly repel their advances towards his prosperous self it appeared to show barefaced worldliness and selfishness that he shrank from with the most insinuating speeches and the most flattering attentions he did not know how much of the coldness of jane and elsie's old neighbours proceeded from the dislike and suspicion with which mr hogarth's religious opinions or rather his religious scepticism was regarded in a particularly orthodox district they had exchanged formal visits and had invited each other to large parties because not to do so would have been unneighbourly but with none of the people about swinton had there ever been any familiar intimacy jane and elsie were supposed to be deeply tinged with their uncle's heresies and they were such very strange girls having been so strangely brought up and having no mother or female relative to exert any influence their uncle had brought them up like boys which everybody thought very improper amelia Shalmers, who was musical could not get on with them at all the three miss jardines who were very amiable girls with nothing in them could not tell whether to call them blues or hoydens their latin and algebra on the one hand and their swimming bath and their riding about the country without a groom on the other made them altogether so unfeminine their uncle thought they were quite able to take care of themselves and of each other and fancied more mischief might arise from the attendance of a groom than could result from his absence and the girls cared for no company in their rides till william dalzell had offered his escort and made himself so agreeable miss maxwell and the crichtons had failed to make either jane or elsie take an interest in a theological dispute on a point of doctrine between some neighbouring ministers which was agitating all swinton at the time and when at last jane was forced to give an opinion on one side or the other she gave it quite on the contrary side from the right one so that they were sure the girls were quite as bad as their uncle both girls had been educated to express themselves very clearly and decidedly whereas as amelia Shalmer says whenever a young lady gives an opinion it should always be delivered sotto voce that is under the powers of the performer's voice to borrow an image from her musical vocabulary even if she does know a thing very well she should keep her knowledge in the background there is a graceful timidity that is far more attractive than such unladylike confidence depend upon it gentlemen do not like it miss jardine would say if jane melville were not an heiress do you think william dalzell would submit to her heirs i know him better than that 
but yet when the girls were shown to be no heiresses every one was very sorry for them if a subscription had been got up to assist them in their difficulties there was no one who would not have given something even the Misses Crichton and Miss Maxwell would have subscribed as much as they did to the foreign missions, and that was no inconsiderable sum, and if Jane and Elsie had thrown themselves on the compassion of the neighborhood, there were many who would have offered them a temporary home. But they preserved their independent spirit, even though they were not heiresses, and could not sue in forma pauperis. It was a subject of much conversation that the Mrs. Melville had preferred to go with Peggy Walker, the laundress, to some poor place in the old town of Edinburgh, to making any application for assistance to people of their own sphere. What they could do under Peggy's auspices was not likely to be of a very brilliant description. It is not to be supposed that Peggy Walker was not as good a judge of orthodoxy as the Mrs. Crichton and Miss Maxwell, but she had not so great a horror of the family at Cross Hall as they had she had been for several years out of her own parish and country and had learned some toleration as she said the old laird was a just man and a kind one and until he made his will she had no fault to find with him and as for the young ladies they were just the cleverest and the tenderest hearted to the poor of all the gentry in the countryside many a tale of distress had peggy told them and had never failed to find the girls open their purses or go to see the poor people they had a liberal allowance and had no extravagant tastes in dress but their charities had been so extensive that at the time of their uncle's death there was no great balance in either girl's hands they knew that peggy was no niggardly woman but a most liberal one according to her means and her opportunities that she gave personal services out of a very busy life and money too out of an income that had many claims on it the house-servants and the labourers in mr hogarth's immediate employment were very sad at parting with the young ladies who had always been so kind and so considerate if the neighbours had thought the girls proud none of the servants did if francis had not tried hard to please them all and to make them feel that he regarded them for the sake of those who had been before him it would not have been likely that he would have gained their good opinion but he succeeded in doing so Peggy Walker thought she had got into a very snug and comfortable dwelling in a flat in street, when she gave what she considered the most cheerful-looking apartment to the young ladies as their sleeping-room. She certainly did all she could for their accommodation. The old man, Thomas Lowry, was particularly pleased with the lookout to the street. He could sit in his own chair and see all the bustle of life going on below, and made little complaint of the noise at first. The five children thought there was nothing so charming as running up and down the common stair, and were quite proud of their elevated position in the world. But the Mrs. Melville could not but feel an immense difference between their own ideas of comfort and those of the humble family with whom they lived. The floors were clean, and the stairs, too, after a fashion, but the coarse, dark-colored boards could not be made to look white. The walls, which Peggy's own hands had sized of a dark brown color, looked rough and cracked and gloomy they were aware that their scanty means did not allow them to indulge in any separate meals or attendance and jane and elsie began as they meant to go on and shared the homely meals in the homely home they had never thought that they had any luxurious taste but the very plain fare and the inelegant service seemed to take away even the natural healthy appetite of youth the noise of the children and the querulous voice of the grandfather with peggy's sharp decisive remarks were all different from the respectful silence with which they had been attended at cross hall 
Peggy was anxious to make the girls as happy as she could, and feared that they must feel this a downcome, but her hands were full of work, and her head of cares. She had made her venture in the world, too, and with so many dependent on her, it was a considerable risk. They could not help admiring the wonderful patience which she had with the old man, who was not her own father, but merely the father-in-law of her dead sister. She allowed him a weekly modicum of snuff, and was particular that Tom, or one of the others, should read the Bible or the news to him in a clear, distant voice, that the old man might be able to hear all of it. In all little things she gave way to him, but in all great and grave matters she judged and acted for herself, whatever grumbling might follow. Over the children she kept a very careful watch, and even when she was absent on necessary business her influence was felt in the household. After the first day was over, and the girls had gone to their own room for the evening, Elsie broke out with, "'Jane, this is dreadful! How different from what I imagined poor people's lives to be! Nothing beautiful or graceful about it! Poets and novelists write such fine things about poverty and honest toil, and throw a halo of romance about them!' "'Yet Peggy is above the average, far above the average,' said Jane, thoughtfully. "'These children are better taught and better mannered than three-fourths of the peasantry in Scotland. "'But yet it is a great change to us, a very great change.' "'I am sure they might be a great deal better than they are. "'Oh, Jane, I really can eat nothing served up as it is done here, "'and that grumbling old man's Kilmanark nightcap and his snuff are enough to disgust one.' Even at tea did you notice Peggy stirring the teacup with such vigour, and balancing her saucer in the palm of her hand? I never fancied there was so much in little things, said Jane, but we must get over our fastidiousness, we must indeed. It is a pity we were wrought up so softly and delicately, though we thought we were so remarkably hardened by our uncle's training. I cannot even write to-night, said Elsie. Everything looks so sordid and miserable, and the town here is so dirty and mean. We must walk out to-morrow a good long way. You know what beautiful walks we used to have all around Edinburgh. We must breathe fresh air and poetical inspiration. I wish I could write, said Elsie, turning over her sheets of manuscript. I have been able to write a little every day since I began, no matter how grieved or anxious I have been. Who is it says that genius is nothing but industry? And I have been so industrious. I must try to write to-night. We are settled as far as we can expect to be settled for some time, and I ought to begin as I mean to go on. No, my dear, you feel disappointed and disenchanted to-night. Do not think of writing. Your work ought to be done at your best moments. To-morrow is a new day, and I believe it will be a fine one. Sleep till to-morrow. But I cannot sleep either. Rest, then, as I mean to do. A little tap at the door announced Peggy. "'Is there anything I can do for you, young ladies?' "'Nothing, thank you, Peggy, but come in,' said Jane. She entered and found Elsie hurriedly gathering together her manuscript, with a heightened color and some agitation. Love letters were the only conceivable cause of a girl's blushing over anything she had been writing to Peggy's unsophisticated mind. "'I should not interrupt you, Miss Elsie. I did not know you had letters to write.' "'It is not letters,' said Jane. "'She is writing a book.' "'A book?' Well, that is not much in my line, but no doubt books are things that are wanted in the world, or there would not be such printing-houses and grand shops for making and selling them. And you are expecting to get a price for that, Miss Elsie? I hope so. Well, it is more genteel work than what I have been used to, but the pen was always a weariness to me. 
I thought shame of myself when I was in Australia that I could write nothing to the big creatures that I was spending my life for, but just that I was weal, and hoped that they were the same, and bidding them be good bairns, and obedient and dutiful to their grandfather and grandmother, and that they should mind what the master said to them at school. And then I would send kind regards to two or three folk in the countryside, and signed myself their affectionate aunt, Margaret Walker. But, dear me, I should have said, fifty things forbid that senseless stuff. I am thinking, Miss Jane and Miss Cecy, that if they had been your nephews and nieces, and you had been parted from them by all these thousands of miles of land and water, that your letters would have been twice as often and ten times as long, full of good advice and loving words. I have heard bonny letters read to me. I marvelled greatly at them, everything so smooth and so distinct, just as if the two were not far apart but had come together for an hour or so, and the one just spoke by word of mouth all that the other wanted most to hear. I would like the bairns learned to write well and fast, for when the pen is slow the heart cannot find utterance. I have heard worse letters even than my own, full of repetitions and stupid messages, and nothing said of what the body that got the letters wanted most to hear. There is a very great odds in letters, Miss Melville, and mine were so useless and so bare that I thought it better to sacrifice a good deal of money and come home to attend to the bairns myself, and to counsel them by word of mouth. Peggy, you have had adventures, said Jane. I wish you could tell my sister and me all that happened to you when you were in Australia. Your life may be useful to us in many ways. Not to put into a book, I hope, said Peggy suspiciously. I have no will to be put into a book. "'No fear of that,' said Elsie. "'It's poetry you're writing, like Robbie Burns's. "'I can see the lines are different lengths. "'I'm thinking you'll have no call to make any poetry on me, "'so I may tell you my story. "'It may make you think on somebody or something out of your own troubles.' "'It was a great wonder to the Swinton people that you returned a single woman,' said Jane. "'They say Australia is the country to be married in.' "'I might have been married over and over again, up in the country, and in Melbourne, too,' said Peggy. "'But, you see, I had the thought of the barons on my head, and I did not feel free to change my condition. "'Some of them said, if I liked them well enough, I could trust to their doing better for the young folk than I could myself. "'But I never let myself like them well enough to trust them so far, though one or two of them were very likely men, and spoke very fair.' "'Perhaps when you return to Australia you may make it up with one of them yet,' said Elsie, who, in spite of her depression, felt some curiosity as to Peggy's love passages. "'The best of them married before I left Melbourne, like a sensible man, who knew better than to wait on my convenience. I see, Miss Elsie, you are wondering that the like of me, that never was what you would call well-favoured, should speak of offers and sweethearts and such like. But in Australia it's the busy hand and careful eye that is the great attraction for a working man. I never had much daffing or nonsense about me, and did not like any of it in other folk, but I had lots of sweethearts. But I'll tell you the whole story, as neither of you look the least sleepy, and if I am hour long about it, you may just tell me so, and I'll finish it up the morn's night. So Peggy sat down to tell her tale, while Elsie crept down on a little footstool and laid her head in her sister's lap glad to receive the fondling which Jane instinctively bestowed on her dependent and affectionate sister. End of chapter 7 Recorded by Amanda Hyman, Glen, Mississippi